Hey friends, you know what I don't miss at all? That vicious week before the period. Feeling like I'm ready to crawl out of my skin, irritated by everything and everyone around me. Bouncing between cravings for salty foods and sweets and back again. Now it's easier to manage PMS with Estro Control from Happy Mammoth. Estro Control contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like the chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a menstruating person's life. And the biggest benefit? Feeling like myself again. That's what people mention over and over in their reviews. And there are over 17,000 reviews for Happy Mammoth products, including Estro Control. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code CORP, C-O-R-P, at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code C-O-R-P for 15% off today. What's up, y'all? This is Zach with Live Corporate, and doing something a little bit different. I'm really excited about this. You know, the reality is that we have a ton of content, right? Um, a lot of content because we have plenty of people who want to be on the show and everything can get aired as soon as we record it. So, you know, we have a bit of a vault. Every, you know, show that, you know, has a vault. And so we're going to let some stuff out the vault for Christmas because we love y'all. And so what you're about to hear is a conversation from our vault as a part of our 12 days of podcast campaign. This is uh, one of those shows. Make sure you check it out. I'm really excited about whoever you're about to hear. <laughs> uh, before we get there, we're going to tap in with Tristan and uh, we'll be back. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, and I want to thank you for tapping back in with me as I provide some tips and advice for professionals. Let's talk about making a career change in the new year. With the new year comes the idea of a fresh start. Many of us begin to reflect on our jobs and start considering the new possibilities. With many companies shifting their business models and more remote options becoming available, a career transition may look appealing. But let's discuss a few things to think about if you're considering a career change in the new year. If you're thinking about making a major change in your career, ask yourself, am I actually looking to change industries completely or am I looking for something to challenge me in different ways? Every shift in your career doesn't have to be a major one. If you work in finance and you're good at it, but you want a job that allows you to be more creative, consider looking for roles in your financial institution's marketing department. Who better to market products than someone already familiar with them? Nonetheless, we know COVID has affected some industries indefinitely, and many people may have no choice but to consider other industries. Either way, get clear on what you want. You all have heard me say time and time again that a good job search begins with clarity. Many of us start a job search with no direction. That's like getting in your car, opening your GPS, and expecting it to get you to your destination without an address. You can't develop an actionable plan if you don't know your end destination. When I say get clear, of course I'm talking about the job title, but you'll also want to consider what skills you want to learn or exercise more and which ones you want to avoid as much as possible. You also want to figure out what is important to you when it comes to a job. Do you want to be remote, have flexibility? Are you looking to move? 
Having an understanding of all of this will help you find a role that aligns with your needs and values. Develop and expand your skill set. When we're job searching, we all too often want to rely solely on the skills we have currently. We often overlook investing in ourselves to expand our skill sets and make ourselves more competitive for the roles we want. To make sure you're focused on upskilling in the right area, do some research on the most in-demand skills and review three to five job descriptions for the same type of role at different companies. Look at not only the required skills, but the preferred ones as well. Take some time to research people who are already in the field. What type of training or programs were they a part of? What licenses or certifications have they obtained? You can even take it a step further and request informational interviews with some of these people to gain additional insight. Now, I don't want to be overly cynical, but I would also consider figuring out a backup plan. One thing this pandemic has taught us is that having a job is not guaranteed. The reality is, new employees are often some of the first to go if a company has to make layoff decisions. Throughout this process, I'd give some thought to what my plan would be if I were to lose my new job. The last thing I'm going to mention is that you'll want to pack your patience. According to all the research I've seen, job searches will be longer for everyone in 2021. Most are estimating anywhere from 6 to 12 months. You may want to consider hiring a career coach or resume writer who may be able to help you get clear, package up your skill set, and develop an actionable strategy to get you to where you're trying to go. Thanks for tapping in with me this week. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Preston, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? I know it's a loaded question. <laughs> it is a loaded question, but it's one that I appreciate always being asked because I am good, you know, trying to make a way out of no way and keep the fight going. So I'm happy to be back. Yeah, it's been a while um, since we've talked on here. I know we've been keeping up in other ways, but, um, you know, it's what it's been two years. Like, talk to me about, you know, in the two years that you've you've been away from like the living cor corporate platform what is clear to you now um that was not as clear two years ago that's a really good question i don't know the thing is i actually believe that i've been right all along about white supremacy and how it showed up and manifested in spaces corporate nonprofit, and otherwise um that's the one thing that became like crystal clear is that, you know what? I found social media and it made me realize that I wasn't as ridiculous as people once tried to make me up to be many years ago. Um, and I realized now that people are actually starting to, many people, right? Many people have always been there. So let me be clear. Yeah. But I think what I've discovered is that many people are now realizing that, you know what? Preston may have been onto something since he was 18 when he was going off about <laughs> white supremacy on campus and, you know, discussing homophobia and transphobia years ago. Uh, maybe he wasn't so ridiculous on these conversations about defunding the police. Uh, maybe reform isn't the answer. Um, and so I've really kind of been wrestling with this a lot lately uh, because lately I get so many messages from people actually offering that and saying that, telling me that I wasn't wrong. And not that I needed that affirmation sure. um, because 
I knew that, you know, I, I felt at least what would get Black folks to liberation were these particular factors. Um, but part of like advocacy and movement building, part of what that actually looks like sometimes is you give people the information some people can argue and resist it. And then eventually many of them come around um, because of their own personal or other lived experiences too. And sometimes that's actually what it takes. So, you know, to answer your direct question, I deeply believe that people realize that some of us on the you know farther left of the spectrum um, weren't so ridiculous and we just see the world a little different than, than others do. You know, to your point, we're looking at about a week uh, before the election, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this, this, you know, we're recording this on the 25th uh, of October. And, you know, this will likely air after the election. Can we talk about the feelings you've navigated during this season and the feelings you're experiencing now? Yeah, this, you know, considering that this will air after the election, I want to say that. For the past several years, I've worked at uh, youth rights organizations, and I just talked about this actually this morning. One of the things that I've realized are the way people oftentimes view what's politically engaged and who's politically engaged or disconnected is based on how they vote and if they vote at all every two to four years. And that's such a myopic way to view voting voting patterns and whether people are engaged or connected. And it's oftentimes used as a sword against young people and black people in my experience. And so, you know, of course, there's been so many young people who've already early voted. And I mean, young people specifically between 18 to to 34, but really 18 to 29 who've already voted early. And some of that was to be expected because quite frankly, it's a pandemic. So people are figuring out how to navigate um, this right now, this world in the grand scheme of the information that they have to be safe. But one of the things that have really stood out to me around this time around is I deeply believe that when young people, quote unquote, save the election, many people will celebrate them. And ironically enough, it will be many of the same people who have once attempted to uh, be adultist over them, who have attempted to be condescending to young people. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I'm wrestling with and I've wrestled with for the past umpteenth years, I feel, is that the way we oftentimes view engagement politically is really terrible, frankly. And it really just reduces people to their vote and their vote every two to four years, not whether they're mobilizing their communities, not whether they're writing op-eds, not whether they're actually organizing during a pandemic, not whether all these things. It's just, did you vote in the election uh, for someone who ultimately will disappoint you every two to four years? So that's one of the things that is standing out to me a lot right now. Uh, For the past several years, I've been wrestling, really since 2016, been wrestling with what is actually engaging and training young people and creating a leadership pipeline and other spaces for people to actually be connected to the policy and the political world that doesn't just revolve around, you know, a random vote every two to four years. Um, It's how do you actually stay connected and informed? How you actually get an information to your communities? 
time I actually sharing information with you so that you can actually share with your peers and other people in your communities. Um, and so one of the deepest things that I've just consistently realized are that, you know, so many marginalized communities are already under a threat of white supremacy and every other antagonism that you can look like. And we're also still forced to be the ones to save this country. And so, you know, it's really unfortunate how, like insular, many of these things are becoming and how much infighting occurs from people who ordinarily should be on the same side anyway. So again, when I look back the past several years, you know, it's a lot of fighting that we've endured, a lot of fighting that we've done. We've had a whole pandemic that we're still experiencing. Um, we've had a Muslim ban be enacted. We've had so many fights to chip away the Affordable Care Act. We've had three, almost three Supreme Court justices be confirmed since 2016. I mean, we've experienced so many things over the past several years, and I always want to go back to this. It has been young people who've taught us that we always need to push for more, that that what we have before us is never going to be enough. And so, again, though the political space may be a little rocky and has been rocky, both in terms, especially in the Senate and the White House, one of the things that gives me so much hope and joy is really looking at young people, and especially young Black people, young queer, trans, and non-binary people, young immigrants, and other folks who realize that this is not enough. And no matter how ridiculous you think I am, I'm going to keep fighting for more. Because even if you don't think you deserve it, I know you do. You know, I love that. I've been thinking a lot about uh, collective organizing and galvanizing power within marginalized spaces. Not so much in like seeking representation in white spaces, but in imagining greater power where I am with those who look like me and share a desire for liberation. What do you think black folks should be focused on in our collective journey to truer freedoms? To be honest, Zach, I think we're already focusing on it. So I guess I'll pause and say that one of the things that I'm always baffled by is by how many black people don't believe Black people know how to organize ourselves in our communities. And there's always something that I always end up observing. And it's usually this, well, I wish we knew now what we knew in 2016 or we would have voted, mm. or I wish we would have voted more in 2018. And it makes me think, your fight is not with people, it is with these systems. It yeah. is, if you want to blame anyone for 2016, blame the Electoral College, right? Blame this winner-take-all system. Blame the fact that our institutions are set up in ways that actually give areas and regions votes more than people, right? And I'm like, and you can be upset or find it, you know, frustrating that people are not buying into the system that, you know, that others have bought into, but that's not the fight. Like, certainly, I can be upset that people in certain places uh, where I'll be very political here, where Clinton end up losing and, you know, and because some people didn't vote. But the truth is, it assumes many things. One, it assumes that the people who didn't vote would have voted for Clinton. Two, it assumes that Clinton had a strong ground game, which as a Midwesterner, I can tell you that her ground game was incredibly weak in some places. Um, and, and it actually, like, completely uh, disinvests from the reality that, Clinton won the popular vote by millions. And so, again, you can use this very, again, myopic argument that people were not voting, but people were voting and they did vote. They just didn't vote according to this random system of winner take all. And so, you know, and, and that's because of Black folks. We already know Black women organize everyone, right? right? Like if they organize everyone, they vote. 
They vote in churches. They take people, you know, from the churches to the polling locations. I mean, so many black women are saving. Oh my gosh, they're saving communities in ways that really they shouldn't have to. One hundred percent. Um, and that's really not right, and it's not on them to do so. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and and black men, frankly, if you want to be very honest, we're the ones who need to do a lot more work and a lot better. Um, you know, I think that's the thing that's been frustrating. Um, is like really seeing these really high numbers that many black men are now siding with Trump, and it's. I mean, it's actually astronomical how many black male celebrities have actually come out in favor of trump usually because they don't understand how taxes work but frankly it is because many of them want to be trump and we don't really want to address it in that way um but yeah black people have been collectively building and organizing for so long that i think it's all we know how to do all black people know how to do is collectively a mobilized bill because we do it out of survival and we've done it for so long. I think it's the, I think it's the truest thing that connects us to our ancestors, frankly. No, I feel that there's something to be said about like how black men, we as a collective need to step up and I better engage and coordinate and support and stand in solidarity with, uh, with black women, particularly straight black men for sure. Um, and yeah, and also there is an ignorance in terms of understanding how taxes work or the reality that like, you know, these things that you believe are going to benefit you, you're not even going to touch these things anyway, because of the systems that we have, they're going to block you from even having the access or su- success you, you believe that you're going to, you're going to have like this. And the, and also this, um, the scarcity mindset and idea of a zero sum game of, well, Knox, if we do this, then that means that's going to hurt my pocket. It's like, yeah, I mean, no, it won't. But then let's say you're a part of that group and you you end up do getting taxed a little bit more. Your people would suffer significantly less in this context if you were to participate in it. So I do I do agree. Can I say, too, what's wild, though? And I agree with you. And what's wild as I as I hear you make those comments is that I also think about the number of people that are not a part of that. Someone proposed a tax plan. And again, I'm not going up for either candidate, frankly. But yes, you know, I, I, I will be casting my vote for Biden. And I, I say this as someone who's been very critical of Biden uh, for years and will continue to be, right? Because Joe Biden is not my friend. He's a policymaker. And that's our job, you know, as citizens to, and people who live in this country, frankly, to hold um, our, our administration accountable, uh, regardless of what political spectrum they fall but I've been thinking about like this plan where essentially like if you make more than $400,000, then your taxes may increase. And it's wild to me how many people I saw get frustrated. Cause I was like, y'all don't make that amount. <laughs> like it was right. actually one of the things that baffled me because I'm just like, this is how I know like the white supremacy is working well. When you make less than $80,000 a year, and you're protecting the rights of people who are millionaires. I know white supremacy and capitalism have done its job. Of course. Like I I know it's run its course. Like when when you are a someone who's living check to check and you're frustrated about the idea that a tax plan of someone making more than four hundred thousand dollars a year is somehow not good. Um, or somehow impacts you directly or your community directly. It's how I know white supremacy is one. And I, that's what I find truly petrifying to be honest. Um, like there are so many people, there's so many working poor people who deeply believe that they're middle class. And that frightens me. There's something to be said about that for sure. I don't think that we really understand how impoverished we are as a group. 
you know, something else I want to say too about about like this narrative, and I agree, I do agree that again, black men that like we do need to vote in heavier interest of our like of ourselves and our people. It's interesting though, like so I'm looking at this tweet from Charles Preston, and so it's a screenshot and it's saying it says black people were 10% of the electorate. So this is back in 2016 exit poll. So black people were 10% of the electorate. White people were 81% of the electorate and the majority voted Republican. He says, I wonder why the emphasis on black men. He goes on. He says, Latino women voted in the same numbers that black men did in Pennsylvania. And the pay gap is worse for them than, than all others. Why aren't special speeches catered for them? I just don't get why Barack Obama has to always deliver to black men. I find it like curious. So that's him. I'm, I'm just, and I'm just, I'm literally reading all this in real time. Like I'm trying to like, I'm trying to spice it up, Preston. But point is like, I'm look, but I'm looking at this content and I'm like, I wonder, this is me thinking out loud for real. Like, I wonder how much of this, like we recognize a black man uh, benefit from and engage in uh, patriarchy, uh, cishet black men, straight presenting black men, uh, pres- uh, participate in patriarchy um, and do oppress black women. Like they, like we have that, we have the ability to do that. I also wonder like if there's any space where we harm each other when we like jump on narratives that like over index or blame black men in spaces where it's like, we're not even talking about white women and their engagement and participation. And as much of the voting power that they have in terms of the percentage of the electorate, how much they like, just where's the responsibility? Like I get it. I'm looking at these percentages, 83% of black men voted for Clinton in 2016, 99%, 99% of black women voted for Clinton in 2016. Black women were 6%, 6% of the electorate. Black men were 4% of the electorate. White women were 43% of the electorate and half of them voted for Trump. White men are 38% of the electorate and 64, golly, 64%, my word, 64% of them voted for Trump. And so like, I'm not anti, to be clear, like I'm not anti holding black men accountable. Perhaps I have some uh, deep unconscious biases or defensiveness. It's very possible, but I guess I'm trying to figure out like, how do we push against like white liberal narratives that are propagated in social media that I think sometimes can propagate intracommunal wars? Yeah, I, I really appreciate this conversation, honestly, because it's incredibly nuanced. And shout out to Charles. Um, Charles is really brilliant. Um, really appreciate him. So I think the question is ultimately, and I think we, you got to it in your in your last statement, is how do we hold white liberal media by and large or communities accountable? Because you know my my fear is that when people hear those numbers, they'll like completely disengage. Black men will disengage because they'll be like, "See, that's not our issue." And the truth is, it still is our issue. I, I think sometimes we've gotten so so invested in like this white versus black that so we don't realize that actually what we're discussing is intra community things. So you know, so again, patriarchy is real, and I think the people who like actually are the most violent harm doers around patriarchy are white men for sure. But it also doesn't mean that black men are not harm doers, and black we're not also patriarchal or at least experience you know, or, or at least like give off violence through patriarchy. Um, just because it doesn't mirror or the same way that white men does it. There's still an issue with patriarchy and black men, and we have to actually discuss it in ways, right? Because if that wasn't the case, you know, trans black trans women wouldn't be being killed by black men, by cis black men by and large. And so again, like they're, you know, just because it's not comparable 
to white folks' responsibility and being accountable. It doesn't mean that we should disengage or disinvest from the reality that Black men, gay, straight, trans, whomever, also have an accountability uh, to like voting our interests and voting our community's interests too. To your to your direct point, so yes, like white people will always be, <laughs> I'm going to say this very clearly, will always be the greatest harm doers, should always have the greatest level of responsibility. And the reason why, and I think Charles know this, and I think, and I'm pretty sure you know this, Zach, is it's easy to pinpoint and to blame marginalized communities for, for our own conditions, right? Even though those conditions are because of white supremacy, racism, anti-Blackness, you know, all the things, right? Um, so again, we know that that's the case and we know it's easy to blame people who already lack access to power and privilege and resources. So um, I think the question then becomes, what are we doing in spite of that? Or, you know, be, and with knowing that information, what are we doing? And I think, again, you know, when I'm talking to other Black people, if a Black person gave me those statistics, I would affirm them, right? They're absolutely correct that those are the statistics. And that still doesn't remove the responsibility that we have to still do political education, to still engage in mass mobilization, to still organize. Black folks have been walking and chewing gum since we've been alive. That's all, again, that's all we know how to do. So while there is absolutely a responsibility for white liberal media, and that's we should push back on that all the time, right? If I was going on TV right now, my message would be that message because that is who should be viewing it. And that is the people I should be reaching. White people, this is on you. Organize your people, collect your folks, you know, stop trying to organize people of color when we know how to organize ourselves. You need to talk to your cousin who you heard say the N-word. You need to talk to your mama who said that she gonna vote for Trump, but she's not really a racist. Like that, those are the people you need to talk to and organize. And yes, white people's job in this space is when they hear people blaming black people or other folks of color for why people like Trump won the, won the election, quote unquote, won the election in 2016. I think the reality is white, it's white people's job to say, but wait, 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 fellow white people, wait, friends. We are the ones who are the, the biggest percentage of electorate in this country. And, and so anytime someone wins or loses, ultimately it's because of us. And that could be a good or a bad approach in the future, right? But we know because of 2015, or 2050, excuse me, there's going to be a new American majority where obviously most folks of color are edging not white people by and large, at least as far as population growth. And so, again, I think ultimately it, it becomes who your audience is, what the message is. So, again, I have two answers here, but it all is the same thing. One is that, yes, white people are the, the biggest electorate and they need to collect their own folks. Two, when it comes to intra-community conversations, it is still a responsibility for Black men to collect each other, to make sure that we're actually holding ourselves accountable um, and being the alleged protectors that we always say that we are. And that ultimately, both of those things are true. I love that. Yeah, no, and I, and I appreciate it too. And, you know, like, I think like you and I vibed and I've always appreciated your time and your your mindset because you do embrace nuance. And I agree uh, depending on the it's the the context of the audience, right? Of like what what the discussion needs to be. Hundred percent agree on both sides, both takes of that. Rather, let's see here. Last time you were on, you shook the room because we were talking about allyship and the the role that white folks should be playing in this space. You know, I asked you about clarity in terms of just overall life and what you're seeing in the world. I'm gonna ask you again: What is clearer to you now than it was two years ago regarding 
uh, effective allyship uh, in all contexts, but certainly in the workplace. I know that your career um, has continued to grow and shift and change. I'd love to just get your perspective on, you know, a lot of folks listen to Living Corporate and they they engage and they tap into this, seeking to really better uh, position themselves as allies or just to grow and develop as aspirational allies, accomplices, whatever word you want to use. I'm curious to get your perspective in 2020. Mm. This is, I reflect on this so much now, um, especially as someone in management now. So this is my first job. I, the past year I've worked at a really wonderful organization um, named URGE. Um, URGE stands for Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. And it is my first job in as, a, as someone in a, with a senior leadership role. And uh, one of the things that's really clear now is how tough it is to be an effective manager. Um, there are so many tools and resources out there for people, and I think we should always engage in those. Um, but there, there are really few tools to talk to managers of color. And deeply, even the tools that are existing aren't really, as I would like to call it, this real talk conversation of what it means to be a manager of color, in particular, a Black or a Latinx manager. When I've had conversations with other people in senior leadership, at other organizations, particularly a nonprofit, has been this exact conversation and making sure that we are not becoming the people who we complained about when we were more junior. And I think in having some of these conversations, that's one of the things I've realized is that some of us have been. Some of us actually become the people who we once complained about. And, you know, for me, that's that's heartbreaking, you know, and I think sometimes we don't even know that we're doing it. And sometimes your your reality shifts. Right. So you start now thinking through whether, you know, for the entire organization's interests, as opposed to, you know, some things that you think would be good for you. Um, and I think, again, all of that is right and all of that is wrong <laughs> to some degree. In terms of allyship, one of the things that I realized, too, is I deeply believe that allyship is still not real. Like, I don't believe it is a real thing. I believe in cons- co-conspiratorship. I believe in accomplices um, because I believe that there are more investments that you make if you're a co-conspirator with someone um, or or an accomplice with someone. Right. It means that you are willing to, like, go to bat. And in the context of management and leadership in, in corporate or um, nonprofit or other spaces, I think sometimes that means actually willing to stick your neck out on the line for people who are more junior than you, who are likely to be more people of color, who are more likely to get paid less than you, who are likely to be younger, um, among other things. And so that means that when you are in those hard senior meetings um, and you hear something that may not be going well, according to you, and you have the right to determine that, that means that you need to speak up. Um, that is what it means to be an, a, an effective co-conspirator. Um, it means willing to sometimes risk your position and your seniority so people who are not in the room can be heard. And I think for me, I rarely experience that. Um, I rarely hear about those stories. I rarely hear about those narratives because when we get in those positions, especially as folks of color, it's like, I'm not, I'm not losing this role. I'm here. Like, I'm here to stay. And some, many of that is out of, much of that is out of survival, but it still doesn't relinquish us of the responsibility to protect the very people who we just were not too many years ago. 
Um, so yeah, so Zach, to answer your direct question, I deeply have gone through these epiphanies of what allyship is, and I still believe it's not a real thing because I believe allyship is very passive. You're not really requiring much of yourself. You're not really giving much of yourself. Um, a, being a co-conspirator, being an accomplice are those things. You're giving a lot of yourself. You're willing to go to bat. You're sticking your neck on the line. You are the ones coming up with programs around leadership development and pipelines, or at least offering people those incentives or um, or understanding of things that they can do to help themselves grow. Um, so yeah, like I, I, real, I deeply appreciate communities connecting in this way, but I still think we have to dig deeper and figuring out what is our relation to people who don't have as much privilege or power or resources than we do. No, I'm right there with you. First off on the top of the top of what you said around the fact that we do need resources specifically for, for black and Brown managers and leaders of people and organizations. I think that that is, that there's a lot of just nuance there in terms of how you show up, how you communicate, with folks who are junior to you, but who also are members of the majority. And like, this what does it mean to lead those individuals and navigate some of the resistance? I think that we don't talk a lot about the fact that white folks do not like listening and doing what black and brown people tell them to do. And I, I just, I don't understand. Like we we've yet to have an honest and frank conversation about that. Like white people find black and brown authority uncomfortable. And it's weird. That, it's, it's weird that we have to like, we, we have to people try to debate or like look at you like you're crazy when you say that when we have the biggest case study of that for eight years with Barack Obama. Like we saw how y'all treated somebody who had a white mom. Y'all did not like the idea of having this person being in such a position of just unquestionable authority by America's own design. And y'all having to submit to that in some degree. Y'all just hated that. And so like it's not unreasonable to consider that, yo, a lot of people just don't like listening to black and brown folks. And then, so there's, there's training that needs to happen, not only for the leaders, but it, there's training that needs to happen for those who've never had a black or brown manager before. And what does that mean? But see, again, we can't talk about that. So instead we roll out technical skills training for managers or other things as if in upskilling black and brown managers, you fix racism, which is in, in itself racist, but um, exactly. And they and it's interesting that that's even done because it's like, if you're not fixing the structural issues, the issues that you're describing, Zach, then it doesn't matter how many black and brown managers that you have, because that means there will still be a lot of resistance from people who are not black and brown, who are more junior than you, who then challenge your leadership, challenge your authority. And it makes it difficult to even want to be a manager after a while. So, yeah. No, no, I'm right there with you. It's like <laughs> I, was, I just, you know, I have I have my own experiences of like being on teams where you can tell people don't really respect your authority, they don't respect your presence. And whether you want to admit it or not, it creates barriers and it it impacts your performance and your desire to be there because you're like, okay, I don't even want to do this because I'm every time I talk to you, every time I say something, I'm being questioned and challenged if if I'm valid. My skill set, though I know I have it, you ignore it, you undermine it. And then it doesn't help when you have white folks who are senior to you, whether they realize or not, they end up slowly taking the side of those subordinates. And then you end up being so you get undermined all across until eventually you're toothless. There's nothing you can really do. Um, Yeah, no, you're right. (laughs) You're absolutely right. um, And then then to you. And I guess like just to your other points, just around like accomplishment and being an accomplice, I agree that I've, I've rarely seen um, 
folks stick their neck out for me and really put themselves in harm's way in the name of just doing what's right for me, just treating like in the name of me being treated like a human being. Um, and sadly, the people that stick their neck out for me the most are the folks who who really can't afford it. They don't even have the capital to extend and yet they have. Um, and so that means that's meant a lot to me. But I, I feel you on that. Um, so you, you shook the room again, but you kind of just you slid past it. So your t- <laughs> your take is that allyship is not real, period. I don't think it is. And I think that's true across the board, right? Not just race. I think, and also when people think of allyship, it's usually in the context of race. Um, But there are so many spaces for people to actually speak up, give up power, et cetera, to many communities that are marginalized, right? So what does that mean in terms of heterosexual folks and bisexual, you know, lesbian and gay people? What does it mean for cis people to be a uh, quote-unquote ally to trans people? What does it mean for men to be a quote-unquote ally to women? Uh, and yes, what it means for white people to be an ally to black people and indigenous and other people of color. Um, so I, again, I, I think the way we just view allyship is wrong from the start. I think it's usually myopic and I think it's usually rooted in uh, this idea of how fast can someone post pro-people of color messages on social yep. media. But when you actually talk to people offline, you see that they're not giving up power and privilege and resources in person. Like you can, like I've seen it in real time. I've seen in real time people who probably should be given their space to other people for, are still the first to jump to sit on panels, are still the first to um, actually be in spaces where they shouldn't be privy to, or at least consistently have access to. And I think that's because they're still only invested in what it means to be an ally to them. Uh, being an accomplice and being a um, a co-conspirator is deeper than that, right? It, ma- it makes you question whether you should be the person to sit on that panel. It makes you question uh, whether you should actually, like, give some of your resources to other communities who don't have it. Like, that's why I don't believe in allyship, because I think it's the way we view it is completely wrong. And it's actually, most of the time, you end up censoring yourself, and not the communities that actually need to be centered and those communities who need more resources and, and a little bit of, you know, reallocation of those resources that are already available to be clear. They're just not in the right in the hands of the right people. Man, 100 percent, 100 percent. Now, look, this has been a dope conversation. I'm frustrated with myself that it took two years for us to to get you back here. So my hope is that uh, we see you again really soon. Yes. Yes. Before we let you go, um, what are you excited about? What are you working on? Uh, where can people learn more about you? All of that stuff. I just want you to just plug as much as you can. Yes, thank you for that. So right now, what I'm most excited about is an election report uh, that we'll be releasing at my organization at Urge, Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity, really on young people. All about how young people are mobilizing communities, building for policy change, and pushing back on this narrative that young people don't care. Young people are just engaged in different ways than people are trying to force them to believe. Uh, So again, engagement may not look like just voting patterns. Maybe it looks like mobilizing your community. Maybe it looks like sharing content. Maybe it looks like shifting culture and other forms of communications and messaging. Uh, It doesn't have to look like voting. And again, so this report's... 
this report tackles that. Um, it tackles and, and tries to demystify that false narrative. Uh, so that comes out November 5th or 6th. Um, so I'm really excited. You can find that at urge, U-R-G-E dot org. Uh, for more information about me, um, I didn't share that I'm an adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center. Um, so I'll be teaching again this spring, spring of 2021, LGBT health law and policy. So if, if at any moment you randomly just have a listener uh, wanting to talk about, you know, the law and what it means to be LGBTQ in the law, um, definitely feel free to message me. Uh, I'm mostly on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, for the purposes here, I'll give my Instagram, which is Preston.Mitchum. On Twitter, it's Preston Mitchum, all one word. Um, I am really excited to be connected. You can find more information on my website, PrestonMitchum.com. Um, and Zach, this has been fun. I'm always excited to talk to you and join you. I know it's been two years, but uh, we can rest assured we will not have another election before we speak again. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so really excited to talk to you. Man, this has been dope. All right, Preston, look, we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Peace. All right, and we're back. Listen, um, again, I hope this holiday season is treating you well. I know that the holidays are not the most joyous time for everybody. I hope that you're able to find some peace and some restoration during the season as we get ready for hopefully what will be a better new year. Until next time, this has been Zach. Make sure you give us five stars in that good old Apple podcast. We'll catch y'all later. Peace. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.